Today is November 23rd. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S.-Canadian border are the Blackfeet. North of the border are the Siksika, Gunai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are now on Treaty 7, signed in 1877, with signatories that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, now Wesley, Chiniki, and Bearspaw Nations, and the Sutina Nation. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit status, and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I can share what I know as I walk down my red path. Oki. I'm Mekochis Chase Tukum Aki, or Red Thunder Woman in Blackfoot. And I say that in Blackfoot to, again, acknowledge I'm on Blackfoot territory. Uh, my spirit name is Red Thunder Woman, given to me in ceremony. My deepest apologies to any Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn the proper pronunciation. I'm Michelle Robinson. I was born in Calgary as Michelle Elliott, a very, a very English name, which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Satu Dene, but my Indian Act and Post status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. My father is so Canadian that I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution through his lineage while having an Indian Act and Post status card. I acknowledge my Dene lineage and that I was born in Calgary, but my family is not part of the Treaty 7 signatories. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare People, also called the Great Bear Lake People, in Treaty 11. I'm native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Clincho Tinne Intehe in uh, Satu Dene, meaning Many Horse Town, named after the Calgary Stampede. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. I want to say a huge thank you to Amanda, Ashley, Beatrice, Diana, Dustin, Joni, Judy, Julie, Kenna, Matt, Nathan, Char Sharon, The Sprawl, uh, Tiffany, and Veronica. Thank you all for signing up. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. We are also on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. NativeCalgarian.com is also up. So uh, today I wanted to focus on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action that focus specifically on education. And the reason why is because I did a book club on it on Monday and we uh, we talked out a little bit of it, and we had some great guests. For the most part, our our circuit our our circle is very um, you know important to us to keep private any details or or names, so that that way we're not um, perpetuating anything you know personal that isn't meant to be shared anywhere outside that circle. So for the most part, I'll just talk about uh, things that I want to focus on on that, and um, I'll go from there. So. When we decided to talk about this by chance on November 14th, Ian Mosby, because you have to remember our book club is, you know, put into advance a long time ago. But um, this great tweet from Ian Mosby, he identifies as a settler, but he uh, for many years now. So the TRC calls to action came out in 2015. It's now 2018. So at least, you know, two other, probably three times he's put out um TRC calls to action status reports. And this one particular tweet, which I reshared and I shared on uh, our Facebook page from him, says, eight are complete 
and 26 or 26 86 are incomplete and how many days has it been since the calls to action were first released 1261 days and that was posted on November 14th so I wanted to just focus on the education calls to action but I wanted to credit him for the work he's been doing and trying to catalog that uh, but also, I wanted to talk about um, the CBC webpage that's called Beyond 94. So um, I'll just read to you exactly what it says here. It says, Beyond 94 is a full year in the making and involves CBC journalists across the country. This site provides up-to-date status reports on each call to action, as well as extensive summaries explaining those status reports. It includes in-depth features and short video documentaries that tell some of the community stories behind the calls to action. It also features residential school survivors sharing their experience. Um, they say that they'd like to acknowledge and thank all the people who generously shared their stories through that project and uh, so that others can hear the truth and understand how to move forward. And they have a ton of credits, uh, a few names that I definitely know and want to give a shout out to Brandy Morin as one of the contributors and Leonard Monkman. Um, I've been reading a lot of great work from uh, Gorg Barrera. He's mentioned in that as well as uh, Tegan Bonnet, Chantel Bell-Richard, Alex Brockman, Megan Dooling, Kelly Malone, uh, Nick Maloney, and Kieran Osborne, Jason Warwick, and Bridget Yard. They also have additional credits to producers, um, camera people, and they say that if you want to submit or question, you can at indigenous at cbc.ca. They have uh, web development credits as well. But, okay, let's go back to the actual calls to action. Um, the reason why I think it's important to do podcast on just this one particular topic is because even though many of my listeners may be Indigenous, I actually really have a lot of non-Indigenous followers and I really do focus more towards non-Indigenous only because um, I think that that bridge building is really important. I think for Indigenous like myself that might listen, uh, we might be the ones that are, you know, trying to connect and trying to understand and have uh, more in-depth conversations about our heritage. Um, if you would like to be on my show and talk about your experience as an Indigenous person, I'd love to have you on because I think um, Indigenous experiences are the most important to tell because we all know the non-Indigenous indigenous narrative as we've been told it our whole life. Um, so to the uh, education calls to action, that's 6 to 12. Um, again, beyond 94, uh, CBC website is fantastic at giving a summary of all of them. And the first one is repeal the spanking law. We call upon the government of Canada to repeal section 43 of the criminal code of Canada. Uh, summary as of March, 2018, that it has not been repealed. And I was really shocked and surprised by that because from my perspective, um, I would have thought that was low hanging fruit. I don't think a lot of people believe in spanking in schools. And uh, what I found interesting was at our circle, we had a couple of non-Indigenous people and we had um, mainly Indigenous, or um, we had mainly, let's start over there. We had mainly non-Indigenous people, but we had a couple of Indigenous. And even though the couple of us kind of identified as teacher's pets, 
we still talked about, um, you know, violence that we had seen at school or experienced at school. And, um, which was interesting because none of the non-Indigenous people spoke up as experiencing that. Um, now, maybe they just didn't feel comfortable. And, and again, we kind of pass and such. So, you know, I definitely don't want to speak for everybody. But some people did exhibit shock at, that there was any type of like belts or anything. And speaking for myself, I can say that I know in our, um, where I grew up, they were still giving the belt. And uh, anyway, I just wanted to you know, talk a little bit about what I remember as a child in a non-Indigenous school system with mainly non-Indigenous people and uh, non-Indigenous teachers, and we still had the belt. And, you know, that was, I graduated in 94, so I'm not that old, I don't think, but maybe, I, my, I'm sure my daughter would disagree. So if you want to uh, send me your comments or questions about a spanking law, give us your perspective. I would love to hear about it. But I was pretty shocked that it had not been uh, appealed or repealed. And I had thought it was. So I actually kind of looked into it a little more. Um, now, again, this is beyond 94. They actually uh, give full analysis here. And their analysis uh, talked about... Um, in November 2017, a group of faith leaders, scholars, and policymakers from across the country presented the federal government with a new Christian theology statement, which called on the government to act on that call to action and repeal Section 43 of the Criminal Code. They presented it, uh, the statement to Senator Murray Sinclair, and that's, you know, obviously really symbolic considering he was the former chief commissioner of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, Jester, Ministers, Minister of Justice Jody Wilson-Rainbow, the first, first, uh, first Indigenous woman to be in that position, and also Crown Relations at, at the time uh, with, for Indian Affairs was Carolyn Bennett. So they presented to those three and as of February 2018, there had been no response, according to their update there. And they gave a bit of a history about um, the December 2015 federal government commitment to repealing that section. And then, you know, kind of the aftermath is even as early as March of 2016, Carolyn Bennett cautioned it, saying that, um, yeah, well, she said all sorts of things, and you can look it up, but... Um, one of the quotes I wanted to tell you that she said was, as a family physician, I have to say there is a way of doing this that explains that in our society, we don't condone people hitting one another and then expect them not to go out and hit other people. I think it's also up to the judicial application of this. That means if you're stopping a child from walking into traffic or all the examples that are used as to why we can't do this, then we can find a way that honors the TRC calls to action, but puts it in a practical way where children can be st kept safe. So I really got the impression there she's <laughs> basically saying, well, if if we repeal it, then we're going to have lots of people coming out and saying, what about the children running into traffic? And, you know, sometimes you have to grab a child. And and it, it's, I'm glad she talked about, you know, honoring the TRC call to action and finding a way because I think, Grabbing a kid from running into traffic is a far different practice than anybody who has read any, you know, story or heard any story about an experience at Indian residential school. 
what it's like and the um, horrible abuses and the horrible excuses of hitting children. You know, some people um, experience putting pins in their tongue, um, you know, cutting off hair, not all of these physical things that were done to them. And that's not even including sexual abuse. Like that's totally separate. Um, these are unacceptable behaviors by teachers that were done to Indian residential schools survivors. And then there were some that passed away. And I think that to even kind of compare that is ridiculous. And then at the end of the day that I know that's what Canadian law is, um, you know, Cindy Gladue having two lawyers argue over the semantics of the way she, you know, like everyone agrees how she died, but nobody's willing that she bled to death because of an, something that was done to her that made her bleed out by one person. And everyone is on the same page about that, but he still got off because they argued on the technique. So I don't understand how Canadian law can allow there to be such like a wide variety where you can literally beat a child to death in Indian residential school and get away with it or pull a kid from jumping in front of a car. Like there's such a, I I can't even believe we have to have this discussion. So needless to say, I was really upset about that, but she also said that the federal government is consulting experts on the issue. So out of all the things to talk about Carolyn Bennett with, like I, I mean, there's 94 reasons to talk to her just if you're talking about Indian residential school survivors, but you know, there's so many other things to talk to her about right now too. And I know, um, right now the governance issues are, are there anyway, don't want to get off to track too much off track here, but I really believe that this is low hanging fruit. So if you are able to, and if you want to, it might be a really good, uh, reason to pick up a pen and write a letter to your MP and CC Carolyn Bennett or, uh, Jane Philpont, to say, hey, why can't we get this going? Um, I looked into it a little deeper and it looked like it was submitted to the Senate and it looked like the person who had um, put tabled it or however it went on to the Senate um, reports that he has or she has since retired or is no longer senator and that it was just kind of tabled. So I don't really know what is happening with the status of, of this, but I do know we have an election cycle coming up here and I don't know if it's going to be done in time. So I think, um, and I know for me in being Alberta, I would probably contact Grant Mitchell. He's uh, an Alberta Senator and there are other Alberta senators now that we could contact. So I just highly recommend contacting your senators that represent your area as well as your MP just to try to put a little bit of a push on this because if we could sneak this through before the next election it's one less thing. Um, TRC call to action number seven uh, eliminate educational and employment gaps. We call upon the federal government to develop with Aboriginal people a joint strategy to eliminate educational and employment gaps between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Canadians. And it says in progress, projects underway. And they have a, a quick summary. And the quick summary is in February of 2018, federal budget, the government committed to create a new Indigenous employment training program, but some of the funding is not new. It includes funding previously committed for a pre-existing program scheduled to conclude of March of 2018, so the next month. Um, 
but it has a far more um, in-depth analysis here where um, it talks about it's being unclear how the new program would differ from any previous versions of it. The new Indigenous Skills and Employment Training Program is being created after consultations with, and they use quotes, Indigenous partners, according to the federal budget. It replaces the Aboriginal Skills Employment and Training Program, which launched launched in 2010. But it, it was in turn built on previous programs that were in place since 1999. So it really looks like the only real change to it was the word Indigenous and Aboriginal. Really, that's what it looks like from, from their report. The federal government committed to spending $2 billion over five years on this program. Uh, previously, this program received only $350 million annually. So, um, yeah, in 2017, the federal government committed $50 million for this program. So, yeah, a little bit of an increase, but again, I don't know if we really can measure there being a difference there. Um, they also talked about youth employment and committing an extra $395.5 million over three years for First Nations and Inuit youth employment strategy. And it provides funding eligible to First Nations and Inuit and governments and organizations, as well as not-for-profit associations, schools, and employers who then create jobs for First Nation and Inuit youth. But the program is not new because that was launched in 1997. And interested potential employers must apply and qualify to access those funds. Um, a former Department of Indian and Northern Affairs Canada, now Indigenous Services Canada, told CBC News that the Government of Canada is working in partnership with Indigenous groups on approaches to close education and employment gaps between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians. Um, in 2018, the budget also included a one-year commitment of $10 million towards the support of Métis Nation post-secondary education. It actually goes on to a ton of different um, amounts of funding over certain amounts of years, and... In 2017, the government also committed to launching a review of with Indigenous partners on all current federal programs that support Indigenous students who wish to pursue a post-secondary education. So the review is to examine whether the current program in place meets the needs of the student to complete a post-secondary education. Um, I think the most important thing for me to say is the next part, and that's in May of 2018, the Federal Auditor General reported that Employment and Social Development Canada did not collect the data or define the performance indicators necessary to, determine, to demonstrate whether the Aboriginal Skills and Employment Training Strategy and the Skills and Partnership Fund were meeting their objective of increasing the number of Indigenous people who had sustainable and meaningful employment, despite having administered the program to support Indigenous employment for over 30 years. <sighs> I don't understand. You have this huge bureaucracy, and they don't have these numbers. How they get away with these things, I will never understand. Um, and I know that there's a lot of, uh, you know, the talked about the bureaucracy pushing against First Nations for historically the existence of Canada. So it's disappointing to say the least. Um, and, you know, and just for me personally, this is not on there beyond 94. This is just my personal opinion. And um, 
you know, when I think about closing the gap to eliminate educational and employment gaps, well, like you have to eliminate racism. (laughs) And while anti-racism training is deliberately said throughout the entire TRC call to action report, you're just, you're, you're, you're just putting a bandaid on something that's, that's not fixed. And, and, and we need to fix the problem of racism because, you know, if my name is Michelle Robinson, I'm far more likely to be hired than if my name has any type of, you know, like white fish last name or many bears or, um, any type of indigenous name that w- screams I'm indigenous. Um, you know, that, that's a huge part of the problem. We can't get funding. We can't get um, housing, all sorts of issues, not to mention the bureaucracy. And just to give you um, a little tiny personal story, when I graduated high school in 1994, you know, me, like all Canadians were told this Indian status card was a get, you know, your post-secondary education for free type thing. And it's not as easy as people think. When I contacted my um, band, they said that they had funding for Blues Quills um, College at the time. And I knew if I went to Blue Quills, I would never like get a job. I just inherently knew that. And I just uh, was too arrogant and had too much, like I I wasn't interested in going down the Indigenous route at all. Um, The alternative was when I contacted Indian Affairs, all they would say is, you got to contact your band. So, and I'm not blaming my band in any way, shape or form. The opposite, um, I told this story to a representative of Blue Quills uh, just last year at a UFC outreach when we were doing um, Indigenization outreach at the UFC. And I told them, I was actually ashamed that I hadn't taken them up on their offer and that um, I did want to tell them that my band was encouraging me to go. And uh, I, I said no. It was me that had said no. And um, they actually took it in a really great way and was really kind to me. And it actually relieved a lot of burden and pressure that I had really internalized for a lot of years by just saying that and then being happy that my band not only knew about them, but was encouraging me to go there. And at that time, I hated anything Native, anything Native. The programming of self-hate was in full effect in my mind at that time. So, um, you know, when we talk about closing the education and employment gap, I mean, that's part of the reason why I brought up my personal story was I knew if I went to SATE and had courses under my belt from SATE, then I was far more likely to get a job here in Calgary than I would if I went to Blue Quills. And um, I'm not I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. I'd like to think I'm right. But regardless of whether I'm right or wrong, at the end of the day, that's my choice. I you know, worked full time and took night courses and I've never gotten a red penny paid for through my band or through my um, Indian affairs. But I was also a hothead at the time, too. So, you know, I didn't know how to go through the structures. And, you know, you really have to remember that that was a time before the Internet. (laughs) So we didn't have like these phones that you can access information. There actually weren't even 1-800 numbers all the time. Um, My band, I had to save up money to make a long distance phone call to call them. So just to give you an idea of that that time, um, there was a Service Canada type branch that I had to go to and they had a big black binder that was like photocopied after photocopy after photocopy of 
you know, possible grants. And it just looked like so overwhelming that it wasn't even worth my time to try to figure out how to navigate that system. Because I'm, you have to remember too, I was just, you know, a dumb old kid, just came from the small town and went to what I thought was a huge city. And um, the whole process was just way too overwhelming. So, you know, we're in 2018. Now kids have access to things. Um, oh, and I should mention my high school guidance counselor at the time had no idea how to help me um, go to university because I asked, you know, I, I was like, okay, so I have this Indian status card. How do I access post-secondary? And she had no idea and didn't care to look into it. And you could tell it was something that she wasn't comfortable with. So I... um. I really felt like I, you know, was just going to have to be like every other kid. And when I looked into school um, loans, they said to me that I had to show my dad's income. And at that time, my dad was unwilling to show his income to me. And, you know, I don't know why, if it was a pride thing or something you just wasn't comfortable doing, you know, don't trust the government with that information. I don't know. I don't know why he didn't. It doesn't matter. The point is, I wasn't able to access post-secondary education. 2018, at least now, you know, you can have access to these forms through the internet, call 1-800 numbers everywhere. Like now, you can even call Edmonton. I'm in Calgary, or I've never lived in Edmonton. But even in those times, you didn't have uh, toll-free numbers to call Edmonton when you, you needed something. And when I had to send in my Indian status card, like I had to have my picture, and I had to give them my original birth certificate, which my family was totally offended by and didn't want to do, but it eventually got my card. So it was a lot of work in order to just get a stupid status card. And by all means, I am a per person of privilege. So, um, you know, I was facing those barriers way back in 1994, 2018. I'm hoping it's a bit better, but from what I hear, from kids, it's not necessarily better. And um, and the other thing was too, there was no Aniskam Center or any Native Center at the U of C. Like none of those things existed. And uh, the Aboriginal Friendship Center here in Calgary, I actually went down into Chinatown to talk to them about it. And um, at that time, they just didn't know what to say to me and the receptionist and like I didn't know whether to make an appointment with somebody I didn't know what to expect so I just kind of walked out of there feeling very defeated at that time so you know it wasn't for a lack of trying um, I talked to my auntie who's now a lawyer and she was just really militant like well it's your treaty right and you just go and they will pay you and I'm like, I wasn't comfortable with, you know, being a few thousand dollars into debt and just assuming the government would pay me when I was already facing so many like barriers on trying to get that done. So I just, I just didn't have that confidence in me to go do that. And I think I'm hoping 2018, it's a lot different now that we have these, you know, native centers and aniskum centers to help kids try to go through the system. I have heard like stories of lateral violence as well, um, internalized racism. For those who have listened to my show before, I have talked about this and I'll talk about it again at the end of my um, episode. And, you know, these are real barriers that I know that the youth are facing, not to mention the continuous racism that's still in the institutions themselves and from the students and such. So, you know, I know when we talk about closing these gaps and these barriers, there's so many um people in the industry that just assume we get all this free money and free handout and I've 
I've never come across um, a native who's gone through university who didn't have absolute financial struggles. Most of the people I have come across actually had student loans and uh, some that were lucky enough to go through the band didn't necessarily have like that funding lined up, um, real problems, real stress. Like, you know, it's, it's the opposite. It's more stress than what, from what I've heard non-Indigenous go through. And I'm, I mean, I'm not trying to belittle the non-Indigenous um, experience because I've seen my own friends struggle with uh, the student loan process going through the government and the closing these accounts and all of those headaches that seem to come along with student loans. So, you know, I'm not trying to say um, non-Indigenous have it so easy. I'm just saying that the government processes suck at every level and it's some and it causes incredible stress for everybody and then not to mention the racism you face within industry with the assumption that you somehow got a free ride when that's not necessarily the case I mean you know I always have to prove my humanity that um you know I don't live some high-risk lifestyle that I uh, am a good decent person and I don't yeah it's awful it's awful the racism we have to face um, right today, the comments that are online against Indigenous people are, are just so gross. And um, I'm 41, and I try not to internalize that. I can't imagine being younger. Um, I think of my, my daughter going through that, you know, hormonal changes of being insecure. Like, I feel awful for our kids that we're still trying to deal with the, you know, underlining racism issue that nobody wants to deal with. So... Okay, I think I got my personal opinion out there. It's healing having a podcast, you know. <laughs> okay, TRC number eight. Uh, we call upon the federal government to eliminate the discrepancy between federal education funding for First Nation children being educated on reserves and those First Nation children being educated off reserves. And the status is in progress. Projects are proposed. And the summary beyond 94 from the CBC gave us was in the 2016 federal budget, the Liberals committed to spending $2.6 billion in additional dollars over five years on kindergarten to grade 12 education on reserve. But that commitment falls short of a 2015 uh, campaign promise, and much of that funding, eight, $801 million, actually has been backloaded to 2020 and 2021, one year after the next federal election, which means it may never be delivered depending on the next government's priorities. So that's disappointing to read. Um, and I'm going to give a shout out to Pam Palmater. She actually uh, had done the first breakdown of education funding on the very first federal budget that went out in 2016 and had a, it was a pretty scathing, you know, article, but it talked about how basically it's not dollar to dollar funding, not even close to dollar to dollar funding. And that was kind of what uh, we, and I say we, because I'm an indigenous liberal and we campaigned on that and all sorts of election promises, like, you know, um, electoral reform that we're not going to do. Um, so that, yeah, that's on me for sure. And I, you know, I, I wish I had access to the finance minister and, and the budget to talk about why that's necessary, but I don't. And, you know, there's not much I can do about that. Regardless, I am sorry for all those people who believed in me. And I believed in Trudeau in 2015 to have done dollar to dollar funding. Um, 
you know, and I'm just going to break this down a little, 2.6 billion over five years. So already take 2.6 billion divided by five and then divide it by 634 because that's how many reserves there are in Canada. So, <laughs> and that's not, of course, including the bureaucracy that eats up most of that money. So, you know, it, these numbers are really, really frustrating. Um, and my husband just quickly did that for me. And we're talking $820,000 basically per reserve, um, you know, per year. So it's, it is disappointing. Um, cause that, I mean, ultimately how many people can really go to school and, and I would say even divide that by half, like, you know, 400 million because, um, or no, 400,000, sorry, because the bureaucracy eats that up right away. So uh, they have a wonderful analysis here, uh, scathing though of the formal federal government anyway, because, you know, they also had uh, reassignment of the, their funds as well. In 2016, the budget, parliamentary budget officer released a report to reveal that the education funding gap was estimated at $665 million, and that uh, represented the difference between the former Indigenous funding on reserves and the funding that occurs to provincially run um, public schools. So still a significant gap, um, which is disappointing. Uh, TRC number nine, published annual reports on education funding and educational and income attainments. We call upon the federal government to prepare and publish annual reports comparing funding for the education of First Nation children on and off reserves, as well as educational and income attainments for Aboriginal people of Canada compared to non-Aboriginal people. The quick summary uh, provided by the 94 and beyond on the CBC is the federal government or arms of the government have, have published versions of these reports, but they are not annual, nor are they complete. And then they have uh, an analysis that's really extensive, um, talking about 2016, the parliamentary budget officer reporting that there was an additional funding gap of the estimated $665 million that we mentioned before. And um, yeah, it goes on that in total, the report determined the government is losing out an annual $27.7 billion boost to the economy. So by not investing, they are losing $28-ish billion in the economy. So the National Aboriginal Economic Economic Development Board plans to release an updated report in 2018 to track and assess advancements that have been made to close the gaps. So, and, you know, we always just have so much work to do. And I'm going to say as, you know, a biased Indigenous liberal that we just haven't had a government until Justin that has seen us as people. So, of course, we just haven't had anyone care enough to track about these things and I'm really hoping that we are going to start seeing some severe changes. And again, I credit all of this work to, you know, I don't know more. Uh, the TRC commissioners who did that work and then the report itself by all the survivors that were, you know, brave enough to tell their stories to us. Um, the hard advocacy work of grassroots people that, you know, have lost their family members. 
here we are, 2015, only now getting some positive media, thanks to finally having media inclusion in media. Um, yeah, so much to say there. But I'm grateful that we're, we're seeing some severe change here quickly. TRC uh, 10, we call on the federal government to draft new Aboriginal education legislation with the full participation and informed consent of Aboriginal people. The new legislation would include a commitment to sufficient funding and would incorporate the following principles. Providing sufficient funding to close identified educational achievement gaps within one generation. Improving education attainment levels and success rates. Developing culturally appropriate curricula. Protecting the rights of Aboriginal languages, including the teachings of Aboriginal languages credit courses. Enabling parental and community responsibility, control, and accountability, similar to what parents enjoy in public school systems. Um, enabling parents to fully participate in the education of their children. And lastly, re uh, respecting and honoring treaty relationships. So the quick summary they have is as of June 2018, there is no Aboriginal education legislation being drafted. Regarding the principles, it would include, however, there are, there are some progresses. Furthermore, in the 2017-18, the federal government supported the creation of two First Nation school systems. And then they have um, a long analysis that talks about there not really being any education legislation drafted, but um, there is some progress. And in 2017, a co-developed Miranda... Uh, MO, MOU, which we're all getting very shady with, <laughs> between the federal government and the Assembly of First Nations on K-12 education was approved at a special chief's assembly, according to Indigenous Services Canada. Regarding sufficient funding in the 2016 federal budget, budget the Liberals committed to spending $2.6 billion over the five years. We've kind of talked about that a few times and we're not too sure how that's going to work. Uh, much of that funding has been backloaded. In the meantime, we have two First Nation school systems that have been created, the Manitoba First Nation school system and um, the four central Alberta First Nations that also did. So that's the Enoch um, area there, Muscochise, um, and they run a Cree education authority. So Yay for Alberta. Yes. But that's kind of an asshole thing when you think of that's just being, you know, a small area in Cree, Cree territory. You know, that's not southern Alberta. That's not the rest of Canada. So, you know, I don't I don't mean to be glib on that. And I know for me, I don't know if I'll ever learn Satu Dene unless I move up back to Yellowknife. And I don't I've never lived there. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if my aunties and uncles want me anyway. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, regarding improving education rates, um, extra funds or earmarks to support the post-secondary educational financial needs of over 4,600 students over the next two years. I probably should really go back to school, hey? But the funding increases at least $10 million less than what was promised during the 2015 election campaign, where they promised uh, $50 million in additional annual support to post-secondary uh, student programs. And in 2017, the government is committed to launching a review 
with Indigenous partners of all current federal programs that support Indigenous students who wish to pursue a post-secondary education. And in 2017, the Canadian School Board Association, which represents more than 250 school boards across the country, released results from a national survey that they conducted to assess in part what efforts had been taken to implement the TRC calls to action regarding curriculum. It determined that 11 or 13 jurisdictions are making changes in curriculum and curriculum delivery delivery in response to the calls to action. And I think anyone who knows what's happened in Ontario knows that um, that was scrapped by Doug Ford's government. So that's not mentioned on Beyond 94 yet, but it will be, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, so still lots of work to do. Uh, TRC call to action number 11. We call upon the federal government to provide adequate funding to end the backlog of First Nation students seeking a post-secondary education. That's in progress. Short summary, 2017, the federal government committed to increase funding for post-secondary student support, but the funding falls short of their 2015 campaign promises. Ah. <sighs> Earn. Yeah, it's a little disheartening to read that for sure. Um, but I, I sadly also know, one, none of the other parties have any type of, you know, better um, ideas on the table. But uh, the other thing is, too, I, I know the current, I know they're trying. I just, it's pretty hard when, you know, of course you want want more for everybody. And you know that it is, like, economically better for the whole country to invest in our students. But regardless, I don't want to get on a rant here. In 2017, the government also committed to launching a review with Indigenous partners of all current federal programs that support Indigenous students who wish to pursue a post-secondary education. The review is to examine whether the current programs in place properly meets the needs. And uh, they committed $25 million over five years for post-secondary scholarships from Inspire. But in order to in order for Inspire to access the federal funding, Inspire must raise an additional $3 million a year in funds from the private sector. Ugh. Gross. Okay. TRC 12. We call upon the federal, provincial, territorial, and Aboriginal governments to develop culturally appropriate early childhood education programs for Aboriginal families. Yeah, I just kind of want to cry thinking about how cool that would have been to have that not just for me, but for my daughter. But, oh, well, what do you do? In summary, in September 2018, the federal government released the Indigenous Early Learning and Child Care Framework. Uh, according to a written statement to the CBC, the government spokesperson states that a framework will guide future investments and programming approaches in Indigenous early learning and child care, including for the federal government's existing Indigenous early learning and child care programs. Federal gov government conducted an online and cross-country engagement process led by national, regional, community-level Indigenous organizations to seek out their insights. I don't remember doing that. Don't tell anybody. Um, and I don't remember sharing it. I try to share those stupid surveys all the time, but... You know, I don't remember that one at all. Anyway, there is a link in the Beyond 94 to it. Um, it is not clear how much of this funding is earmarked, earmarked to be distributed after the next federal election in 2019, when another government may have different priorities. 
And of course, it's the CBC Beyond 94 is a CBC production. So they have even more links to things like childcare is a chronic issue, says the aqualic parents quitting jobs and dropping out of training programs. Um, most families can't access flagship on reserve childhood development programming. Um, Head Start gets a new start as Star Blanket Cree Nation opens up a new learning center. Ontario announces funding for Indigenous child care spaces and early years programming. I didn't check the date on that because um, things may have changed, right, since Doug Ford got into power. So, yeah, so that's the Beyond 94 kind of update, and I'm really grateful for that work. And I keep bringing it up because if you want to access it and look at the other 94 calls to action, um, they did a great write-up on all of them. And I just wanted to focus really specifically on education because that's what my book club did. And um, at my book club, I can't necessarily share everything that I would like to. Like, in, for example, um, one of the questions that had come up was about why the bureaucracy takes up so much of that money. And I talked about the historical amount of um, Government Canada employees and the, the unions that have pushed against Indigenous people on this so that they can keep their jobs. And uh, yeah, that didn't go over well. <laughs> there were a lot of NDP supporters in, the, in there. And it was funny because um, some of the comments said, you know, got too political. And then there was others that were like, yeah, I think some people need to check their privilege because we try to talk at the start about recognizing settler privilege and recognizing, you know, the incredible privilege that um, non-Indigenous have faced compared to Indigenous people. And uh, yeah, it's not always easy to relay that in a way and, you know, emotions get high and things get taken out of context and it, it just gets where sometimes where you wish... Um, people could just think in your brain of what you're you're looking at and the long historic standings. And uh, I, I mean, even yesterday here in Calgary, there was this huge um, uh, thing that happened. Um, Justin Trudeau came to Calgary, did a speech with the Chamber of Commerce, which is right across the street from City Hall. And uh, there was all these people that were outside protesting. And um, I'm not going to name names, but I know I had seen oil companies, you know, send letters to their employees and say, you know, be at this rally. So, I mean, at least they were paid to be there, I guess, by their employers. But I can't imagine if you, you know, it, it's a it, there's a lot of pressure, obviously, like you you're almost bullied into being a part of that. And then um, on top of that, there's a postal uh, strike happening right now. So the postal people were there in with all these pro pipeliners but the irony was that they weren't all pro pipeliners some were just you know paid staff to be there and the other part was that um there were lots of union workers there but the way things are said in the media it's like they're all poor uh, pro pipeline supporters when that's not necessarily the case so anyway but it it does look pretty funny to have Typically, conservatives and typically NDPers like protesting in front of Justin Trudeau's speeches. Um, at one point in time, he did a release of uh, affordable housing yesterday. And uh, like we haven't seen this type of investment for so long. And somebody booed him. And, you know, the the news made a big deal out of it. But you can hear in the background, it's one person. And uh, I mean, who boos anybody at an affordable housing um, announcement? But 
whatever. What do I know? I'm, uh, I'm really shocked at the uh, type of vitriol that came out from this. There was a person who actually had a, had a shirt on it, had a tree with a noose on it. And it said, uh, you know, welcome to the West Trudeau or something like that. Like come out West Trudeau. And, uh, you know, that's not a reflection of Albertans. Um, that's just this one guy. I don't know who paid him to be there or what, but whatever. He was there and uh, he had a sign along with his friend and his friend had a, a, a shirt that said something to the effect like low class Albertan or something. And I mean, I wouldn't be caught dead in a shirt like that. And I was born here and lived here my whole life. So needless to say, I was really disappointed. Um, she ha held a sign that actually made fun of um, Margaret Trudeau and you know, I'm just going to say this because when I shared it on my Facebook and I started to talk to other people, that, the younger generation, um, they may not know what that's in reference to. Um, Pierre Elliott Trudeau was married to Margaret Trudeau and um, Margaret Trudeau actually ended up having mental health issues. But um, at that time, and I remember very clearly for anyone who's heard my story, how mental health was looked down upon at that time. And, and it's just an awful, awful time. And then to make fun of somebody who, um, she, had, she came out with a book. I haven't read it yet. It's kind of on my, I can't wait to read it list, but, uh, I don't have enough time list. <laughs> anyway, um, I just wanted to, uh, to say that, you know, mental health is not a joke and to make fun of, um, Mrs. Trudeau, or I guess Margaret Trudeau, I don't know if her name is Trudeau anymore, is an, is an awful, awful thing to do. So I just uh, thought it was really distasteful for somebody to have a sign like that. And the other guy had a sign, and Fidel Castro, she's been with, and it was just awful. I just wanted to bring all of that up because it just shows, like, even so-called protests has a wide variety of why people are there. I would have loved to have been there, but I couldn't because I was, um, we have an annual thing from work. Um, Calgary East Family Violence Collaborative has a, a yearly, well, annual mini conference. And we, we had it at the new central library and it was absolutely wonderful. And uh, so that's where I was from my point of view anyway. Uh, really, really enjoyed doing that. So anyway, um things in Calgary aren't nearly as bad as if, I don't know, you were to look in the news, like when 8% unemployment is actually not that bad. Um, you know, but the way the news make it sound, it's like, it's the end of the world. And it's too bad because we're actually doing really well. Uh, the IOC recently came out with uh, a tweet talking about Calgary being like the top three places in the world to get a job. And, um, I, I know that that's a thing. I'm sure if I wanted to go get a job, despite me being a liberal and, you know, all of the work that I've done, I'm sure I could still get another job. So um, I'm not too concerned about that. Um, my bigger concern is that people are, you know, perpetuating awful things about the West here. And that doesn't represent Calgary. It doesn't represent Alberta. But that's what will get the most press. But as you know, as an indigenous woman, I read people say awful racist things on Kent Hare's 
uh, lists or um, shares about the affordable housing and, you know, people making racist comments against First Nations and then, you know, seeing ultimately a noose is a violent representation of, you know, what they'd like to do to the Prime Minister. And I... I have been to many protests in my life and we have never suggested hanging or hurting like Stephen Harper when we disagreed with his policies either. And um, I don't know, it's just disappointing because uh, how people will look at Alberta, look at Calgary, but also (laughs) First Nations would never get away with that type of uh, violent conversation. So anyway... Yeah, that's kind of what's going on in my world right now. And I was, um, I'm sitting here in my pajamas and I'm going to tweet out a picture of me in my pajamas. And um, that's why I love podcasting because I can be in my pajamas and uh, talk about the things that's going on in my world. Um, I want to give a quick plug out to Walter McDonald White Bear. He's doing some native awareness training that's open to the public on Wednesday, December 3rd, but you have to register and pay. So make sure that you do, but it's a full day and it'll be worth it. Um, Indigenous people have been talking about, you know, our issues, our, our shared traumas and reports, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words, honor their words, honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize the marginalized in their budget with the Gender Equity Plus, if they're cutting violence prevention programs and services, know that your vote uh, to that party directly negatively impacts marginalized people. Demand that they, and, and you're responsible for that. So demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, the multiple reports on child uh, welfare reform and violence prevention. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the educational and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, and sexism, they literally have no business running. Uh, these should be understood by all parties and local politicians, community organizations, and that. Violence is our everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear you know, my opinion or another Indigenous person's p- opinion, but sure want to tell us theirs usually by people who don't know anything about Indigenous people, our issues about colonialism, the constant surveillance of our protests, our vigils, and our rights, um, my typical microaggressions that we deal with every day. And then we have to deal with internalized racism. You know, there are Indigenous people that are gatekeepers that survive off the status quo. Then there are other Indigenous people that are really in their trauma and they lash out and hurt people and they stop people from doing, you know, good work or maybe deplete the resources. Um, Internal and external racism is just an everyday reality uh, for many of us. And yeah, it makes life um, difficult. But at the same time, it shows our resilience too, because when you know somebody is being mean to you and you know where it's coming from and it's coming from that structural racism, for me, it's really easy to forgive them and move forward. And I, I pray for that for everybody listening or for other Indigenous people struggling with that right now. Um, it's sad I needed this podcast for a boundary, but here we are. My hope is just that my family will be proud in the future if they listen to this. And yeah, 
this is our, our journey. Um, one of the things that I was doing in the first 30 episodes of my podcast was talking about cultural safety. And uh, the reason why I do that land acknowledgement is to create a safer space for Indigenous people. And in order to create a safer space for, you know, marginalized people, people of color, LGBTQ2+, we need to create a culturally safe environment. So here are some guidelines. Uh, do something. Having good intentions is not enough. Take action and make change. Speak out against racism. Ask questions for those with more understanding. Find allies and create a support system for yourself that you can help advocate for culturally safe approaches. Take responsibility for your own learning. Uh, read, reflect. I can't emphasize reflect enough. If you feel angry or hurt, really stop and think about that. Um, yeah, ask questions. Don't expect this learning to come from Indigenous people. Take time for self-reflection. Uh, you know what? I think I'm going to just stop for my scripted piece because this is me and Mahilin. <laughs> and just kind of talk a little bit about colonial politics because, um, you know, I really upset an NDP supporter. And really, you know, you could tell it really triggered this you know, privileged colonial person who doesn't understand that there literally is no colonial party that will represent Indigenous people because that's the point. It's colonialism. It's not our government. Um, never has been our government. And um, this government was imposed on us. There's not, you know, equally shared responsible governance. It's just somebody else's governance system that we're supposed to go into so, you know, I, I know I might say things that are upsetting to some people, but you have to understand where this is coming from. This is coming from a place of understanding colonialism. This is coming from a place of, you know, I'm a liberal, but I, it's not because I'm a liberal that I would prefer that party. It's just they're the only party that has an Indigenous People's Commission. They're the only party that's willing to have some, you know, regular folk. I'm not with any Indigenous organization. And when you're not with an Indigenous organization, that really changes, like, uh, the dynamic. Um, I'm, I've been with a nonprofit in the exact same position for years now. And yet I'm not invited to, you know, an anti-racism conversation unless I'm invited by another outstanding agency that allows me access there. You know, this idea that First Nations have all, have all this access to government. I mean, I've been to treaty conversations and because I'm not elected, I don't get to sit at those tables or speak at all. So you have to like really know who's at that table and, and get that type of permission in order to have conversations. Like it's not easy engaging with government. And especially if you're a person like myself who just, you know, I'm just a regular lay person. I'm just a mom who wants a better place for my daughter. That's my, what I want. And it's just not that as, as, as accessible as people may think. So colonial government, I mean most people will get a response from their MLA or their MP. Um, indigenous people are not looked upon the same. It's never been that way. So before you get really upset about some of the things that you see um, said by an indigenous liberal, like you have to remember that this is coming from a completely different perspective 
than just, oh, she's a liberal and a partisan hack. <laughs> because I'm pretty sure if you listen to anything I had to say, you would know I'm the last thing I am is a partisan hack, but I just care about what we can do for Indigenous people and what can we can do like right now to make things better. Um, I'm ultimately a mom. That's all I care about is can I make this place a little better for my daughter? Can I make it better for my next generation in general? Because that's, that's ultimately what I want. So yeah, I, uh, I actually really um, put out my thoughts a little bit about this on uh, the Facebook page. If you've, if you're paying attention and seeing what it is that I'm, I'm putting out there. And um, there's some really great articles that have been out there as well that I try to share about settler privilege. And um, so, yeah, I'll just share this uh, one particular conversation I was having. There was a, a woman on the Idle No More uh, official page and said, my question to First Nations would, uh, would you consider running in the next federal election to push environmental protection and advance Indigenous human rights and to end boil water advisories. So, you know what, I put a super long um, post that I want to say here, and that's, you know, Indigenous and environment should never be a partisan, um, should never be partisan at all, but also colonial politics isn't something that would ever represent Indigenous people or the environment. Um capitalism or neoliberalism is taking the land and its resources and that's the colonial construct so we're always in conflict with this uh the longer conversation on understanding colonial uh politics and settler privilege that said many indigenous people will vote and some will run so voting green or creating another party will not help indigenous issues because it will actually split the vote to the advantage of the conservatives I'm a liberal because I know if they don't garner the progressive vote, conservatives win the majority vote electoral system and create more policies that benefit non-Indigenous at the death of Indigenous, as we've seen in Rona Ambrose cuts to women programming, violence prevention programs, and Harper's Indigenous cuts. You know, um, so, and I said, I live in Calgary, so there is a huge difference there too that the rest of the country uh, may have some writings that would not go blue with um, a vote split, but colonial politics are the root of violence against Indigenous people, and I, it's really hard. Um, in my world, being a liberal is a harm reduction strategy and a, an abusive colonial relationship until there is unity and change in Indigenous. You know, I honor the grassroots who can create that change. You know, too many settlers will never allow Indigenous leaders to lead, even at the grassroots level. So having grassroots allies creates change to the other allies is my main goal in allowing the next generation to lead. My efforts to help the liberals is because they are the first to acknowledge us as humans. They aren't perfect, but they are trying. And I'm seeing changes everywhere thanks to I Don't Know More, the Indian Residential School Survivor Testimonies in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and their report, the hard work of Indigenous families that have lost loved ones from this, which is why we're even having a national inquiry to say that our people haven't been political, and it's not that anyone insinuated that, but the colonial readers think that way, um, that erases the political work our ancestors and the current organizers are doing. Um, no party or government even tracked water issues on reserve ever. Not only has um, Jane Philpont created a full inventory, but she created timelines that she's been uh, 
targeting. This work will end if the conservatives get election uh, elected, and I would love to be wrong. To me, this is a harm reduction. This is harm reduction until we collectively agree on plan B. I didn't get anybody really comment on that, but, you know, I just want people to know where I'm coming from because um, I just know that if we start vote splitting, then the conservatives win by default. So, oh, and I want to show, just share a quick uh, meme. <laughs> you know, when you're trying to talk to uh, people about decolonization, they have a picture of Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future, and he's like, I guess you guys aren't ready for that. And then he has that other look, but your kids are going to love it. <laughs> anyway, at this point, I'm just babbling. So um, I really hope that you look at my Facebook page too, because there's some great articles there that I like to share. But I definitely wanted to get out that partisan politics uh, is colonial politics, which is not something I necessarily agree with, but it's the system that I have to work with as just a regular layperson, indigenous person sitting in a city. That's what I got. That's what we got. So when I talk about going back to self-reflection, settler privilege, there's a great article about settler privilege. I really wish people would take time for that self-reflection, question their assumptions, their biases, question everything they've learned about Indigenous people, and take steps to actively disrupt those stereotypes, commit to lifelong learning, be prepared to be uncomfortable, understanding colonialism and the legacy of racism is an ongoing and difficult task. And I want to say thank you to heretohelp.bc.ca for what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it, because that helps create that safer space. Uh, internalized racism, that is the lateral violence that you hear about. This is created because of systemic racism. So, you know, uh, there's tons of information out there if you want to Google about internalized racism. But my biggest piece of advice is just forgive people um, when they're acting out and they're lashing out. Um, there's nothing wrong with having boundaries with people. There are people, Indigenous people, that I absolutely love, but I can't have them in my life because they're just too abusive right now. They're really in their trauma. And um, I doesn't mean I don't love them. That doesn't mean I don't pray for them. And I do. And I know where it stems from. It stems from the trauma created by systemic racism. So, you know, I just, I share that in the hopes that if you are out there and you are experiencing uh, lateral violence or internalized racism, know that it's not you. <laughs> know that this is the racial construct that we're all struggling with. Um I do want to also give um, bystander intervention. Um, the American Friends of Com Service Committee has given us a wonderful website of resources of do's and don'ts for bystander intervention of what to do if you are witnessing any instances of racist, anti-black, anti-Muslim, anti-trans, anti-indigenous, anti-immigrant, um, anti-marginalized um, group, you know, catcalling any form of oppressive interpersonal violence and harassment and tips on what to do. First, make your presence known, especially to the witness. You know, make eye contact of the person being harassed. Ask them if they want support. Move yourself to be the barrier between, you know, the person harassing and the person being harassed. If you're safe to do so, record it. And of course, if the person consents, but take cues from the person being harassed. Make suggestions like, would you want me to walk over here? Do you want me to move to another train car? Do you want him to leave you alone and follow their lead? Um, 
just honor the way that they're doing it. And especially white folks don't tone police the person being harassed. You know, expecting people not to be angry is the worst thing that you can do. Um, that's just all of that trauma all over. Most important, they'll follow up with the person being harassed after it's over. You know, that's when people will, uh, the adrenaline starts slowing down and, you know, you cry or whatever that looks like. And, and that's normal and healthy and good. And, you know, give them your number and say, hey, if you want to press charges later or if you're thinking about it later, whatever that looks like, you know, we can document this together. Whatever that looks like, be that supportive person. Just make sure you do whatever you can to keep yourself safe, assess your surroundings, see if there are other people that you can uh, pull in. Working as a team is a good idea. Um, can you or the person being harassed move to a safer space? And I, I'm just going to say this real quick. Uh, Terry Crews came in, not yesterday, but the day before for a fundraiser for the YWCA. And he spoke really clearly and encouraged men to, you know, call down any toxic uh, male behavior that you see. And of course, the next day we had these awful protests where people had these ridiculous shirts and signs. But it's the point. Terry Crews was using his celebrity to talk about calling people in and trying to create a safer space and calling out people who are not creating that safer space. So you might be surprised how much power you have by just saying, that's not cool. You know, maybe that's the, you know, I'm, I'm going to like extreme, like extremes here, but his way and his approach was, is maybe something that you could consider as well. Uh, don't call the police for many communities experiencing harassment right now from Arab, Muslim, Indigenous, Black, queer, trans, and immigrant. Police can actually cause a greater danger and stress for the person being harassed, unless, of course, they ask you to then call. Um, don't escalate the situation. The goal is to get the person being harassed to safety and not incite further violence from the attacker. But don't do nothing. Silence is dangerous. It communicates approval and it leaves the victim high and dry. So if you find yourself too nervous or afraid to speak out, move closer to the person being harassed to communicate your support with your body. And again, silence is dangerous. This is a chance, like Terry Crews says, call out any toxic behavior if you feel safe to do so. We talked a lot about a lot today, but I wanted to say if you're experiencing emotional distress or want to talk, um, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's toll free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as well as your local distress center and um, other suicide prevention lines. Don't hesitate to reach out if you just want to talk it out. You'd be shocked at how healing it is talking these things out are. So I want to say a huge thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom, to what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be blunt and strong, my stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and roots, and stepping up and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian because it's through her that I am a second generation proud Calgarian. And thank my husband, Darcy, for producing, editing the show on top of being my husband, childhood friend, father to our child and support down my journey of the Red Road. He has witnessed decades of racism and sexism and to our child who we are blessed to learn with from every day. We are so honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a stronger and better person. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to previous donors for already showing their support to our show. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. 
to those who cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com or you can send in your comments and questions. We are also on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. NativeCalgarian.com is also up. We'll talk to you later.